G'day Footyology listeners, Roko here. Enjoy our podcast? Well, you can become an official Footyology podcast supporter simply by using the supporter feature through ACAST. There's no subscription or regular commitment, just the sheer satisfaction that comes with knowing you've kept the debt collectors from our door. No, just kidding. It does help though. If you want to get started, you just need to follow the support this show link in the show description. Thanks again. And now let's get on with it. Welcome to the Footyology Podcast with Rowan Connolly and Mark Fine. G'day, everyone. Welcome to the Footyology Podcast for 2020. After a couple of weeks off, uh, very happy new year to you. As I say, very good morning to my co-host, Mark Fine. How are you, Finey? I'm well, within the parameters of living in this new, new reality of smoke haze and just the sense that our country's burning. It's a surreal morning this morning in Melbourne. It's it's wintry conditions, cold, rainy, but smoky, and it smells like we're sitting atop a forest, you know, a, a burning, smouldering forest. Well, it's been like this for a couple of days. We are going to uh, devote a fair chunk of this program to these sorts of matters, but it's unavoidable. It's the uh, it's the new. Reality, and uh, just think, you know, we've got a tiny, tiny taste of it. Imagine the people in uh, those country areas who've been living with this and in New South Wales, some cases, for a couple of months. So uh, it is futuristic and surreal, and uh, to be honest, I I found it uh, very scary. But look, we'll we'll touch on this. How was your Christmas and New Year's and all that? Very nice. So New Year's, we had some friends over, and it was most enjoyable. We sauntered towards or towards the city mm-hmm. with the throng and saw the fireworks. Haven't done that for a while. Mm-hmm. You know what? Fireworks are a strange thing. They they bring out the child in you. I, if you would have asked me five minutes to 12, well, they did. Come on, let's go and look, watch the fireworks because mm-hmm. we're sort of within walking distance of a good vantage point. I was, no, nah, don't bother about it. But once you're out there watching them, there's something that again, just brings out the inner child in you, and they, they are good fun. So it was a good good fun evening. That's good. I, it seemed I, I had a, a, a quietish one. We had dinner with a couple of friends, and um, that all sort of broke up before midnight, sort of saw him a new year, and I was, you know, not in bed not that long after that. Just seemed an understated New Year's to me. That could be me getting older. But I, I think what's been going on in the background had a bit to do with that. Of course, Sydney, there was a big uh, brouhaha about whether they should have their fireworks at all. Mm, that's right. Um, and uh, I understood that. But uh, hopefully everyone having a listen uh, to this had a good New Year and a good Christmas too. Of course, it's a time that's big on family and, and friends. And uh, I did actually post a, a uh, short video message on Twitter on Christmas Day, actually, finding it was just... I've just found on Christmas Day, I found myself thinking about um, people who didn't have it so good and didn't have families and friends or, you know, were uh, suffering in some way. And it was, um, I don't know, I got a bit down about it. So I I decided to post a a little video and I had some um, nice messages from people in response to that. So um, thank you. And, uh, you know, it shouldn't just take Christmas. We should always be thinking about people in... Uh, less fortunate situations than us. Uh, we should also, at this stage of the show, finally uh, thank our very generous sponsors. You bet we should and we shall, because Andrew's hamburgers provide 
that well now when they we had fun last year saying it was their 80th anniversary. Yeah. Well, they're in their 80s now because this year will be their 81st year of producing not only Melbourne but Australia's much loved hamburger standard. And when I say hamburger standard, I don't mean they're just a standard burger. I mean it's the standard by which all other burgers mark themselves and aim to be. Really, it is the true Australian burger. It starts with the bun, of course. We've talked a lot about the uh, the buns on their own in, in this show because they are just a work of art, you know, just soft but firm at the same time. The, uh, Hard but fair. The uh, meat patties uh, bursting with flavour, um, pure 100% Australian beef. There's the key, though. They're all beef. Mm. Well, you'd want them to be. Well, there's some fillers used at other places. Yes, well, not at Andrews. No hamburger helper there. Crisp lettuce, juicy tomato, um, assorted other ingredients. Eggs. I can't talk about eggs because I've never actually eaten one. Never? Well, no, I'm allergic to them, so I have So how do you know? If you've never eaten one, how do you know you're allergic to them? Oh, I don't. When I was a baby, there's some horror stories there. Anyway. So uh, you don't, you'd, you've never had a bum nut? A what? Bum nut. What's that? An egg. Oh, no. Okay. A cackleberry. Uh, no, I haven't. I couldn't tell you what it tasted like. Um, oh, they're lovely. And uh, our other great sponsor, of course, is uh, Nick Spartels and Hardwick Bilco. Absolutely. They're also located not far from 144 Albert uh, Bridport Street, Albert Park, which is where Andrew's hamburgers are for the not Curious. Not Albert Street, Bridport Park. There is a Bridport in Tasmania. Yeah, I'm sure there is. But, no, it's a Bridport Street, Albert Park, and in that... Area of surrounding suburbs, Middle Park, Albert Park, South Melbourne, Port Melbourne, that has become such valued property. We know that there are a lot of people that have houses there that might have been part of the family for a couple of generations, and they now sit on valuable land and valuable valuable house asset. So why not maximise that value by getting a fantastic rebuild or renovation by Hardwick, and Nick Spartels, the building company to the stars. I endorse those comments 100%. All right, let's not waste any more time. Let's talk news. On Footyology, news feed. Well, not much uh, footy news around. Obviously, all clubs and the AFL still on the Christmas break. Uh when do they return? I think the AFL people start sort of getting back halfway through this week. I know some clubs are resuming around the middle of this week, but uh, all quiet on the Western Front. Well, in some respects, Finey, I've actually been doing a fair bit of homework on the uh, season ahead. Um, why have I been doing that? Well, I've um, doing some work for a sporting magazine by way of season preview stuff, so been going through all the clubs one by one. Oh, that's good. That's, uh, that'll give us an insight here, a first look at prospects for clubs uh, with your expert eye cast yeah, over that. Yeah, I think I've got four to go. I've done 14. Alphabetical? Thus far, yes, always do footy stuff alphabetically. Um, I know you're going to ask me, what have I gleaned? Well, uh, the usual things you glean this time of year, which is that uh, there's probably only one or two clubs who you dismiss from uh, finals calculations. Everyone has a decent argument as to why they would improve. In fact, every team, regardless of whether they have finals aspirations or not. But I mean, to um, drill down on it, 
I, I reckon, in fact, I'd go so far as to say the only club I would say here and now absolutely cannot make finals is the obvious one, Gold Coast. Yep. I think, uh, I mean, who finished second last on the ladder last year? Melbourne. Yeah who the previous season were a preliminary finalist. And, uh, you know, I look at the Demons, for example, and, uh, well, they've had a couple of really good pickups, I think, in Adam Tomlinson and Ed Langdon, um, both of whom are sort of slated to play in outside running roles, which is something they really, really lack. Um, This is just an example. I mean, another reason you might be reasonably bullish about Melbourne improving is the fact that last year, despite their terrible performance with only five wins, I'm pretty sure they finished fifth for numbers of inside 50 entries, Uh, uh, something like fifth, fourth or fifth for contested ball. So, I mean, they get their hands on the football, they just absolutely torch it. Um, Key for them is going to be converting those opportunities, uh, and to wit, they need uh, Sam Wiedemann to stand up. Um, I, I think they expected a lot from him last year, he didn't deliver, had injuries as well. Ditto Tom McDonald. Um, you know, it's stuff like that that can make a huge difference. So uh, anyone in particular you'd uh, be interested in knowing about? Well... That that uh, is before the letter S. <laughs> That's right. Not St Kilda, Sydney, <laughs> Western Bulldogs and West Coast. Uh, no, well, I'm, I think I'm halfway through St Kilda now. I mean, you know, look, I was very impressed with their recruiting swag. I think they've done, you know, really well. Brad Hill probably being the highlight there, I think. But um, I, I think also what people don't realise or are not factoring in about St Kilda is that Hanbury, who looked really good in the four games he put together at the end of the year... He's virtually a recruit. He is virtually a recruit. And he's up and... He's, I know he had that setback, but he's in full training from the moment they return. He's already started training. Mm. Dylan Roberton is back. He's He's been in full training from the start. He looks in great nick. Did he find the S in his surname? Robertson. Mm. No, but we found, or St Kilda found him again, which was seemingly unlikely after almost two years on the sidelines with a heart condition, but shares some similarity with you as he now has a defibrillator as part of his life. Mm. So that's interesting, isn't it? Oh, well, it is. It's uh, your inbuilt insurance policy, I guess. Yeah. yeah. But he's he's a great addition. Jake Carlisle only started playing in the second half of the season. Mm. And people are a bit down on him, but I think with a full pre-season, which he's having, he becomes a more valuable player. I think it's easier to get excited about the sides that have picked up, I find this anyway, that have picked up uh, known senior commodities. Of course. And St Kilda did more of that than anyone. Um, You know, my club, for example, Essendon, well, they picked up um, Andrew Phillips, the Ruckman, Tom Cutler from Brisbane. So I've been, yeah, I've been... Um, I was going to say something that was very inappropriate just accidentally. Um, you know, I've been reading about uh, Cutler and what he's capable of and, uh, you know, per- perhaps there's a guy who could go up a cog or two. But in terms of improvement, how often do you see this? It ends up, the you know, besides it improve rapidly, it ends up being driven as much by... Guys who've been there a couple of years who suddenly, you know, the, the penny drops or the yeah. light bulb goes on. Yeah, that's that's right. It, it's improvement from within. You cannot bank on any recruits, whether they are from St Kilda with their experienced, swag, a swag of experienced players through to Gold Coast and those teams that have got a big injection of youth. 
you've really got to plan it around internal improvement and hope that the players you bring in are complementary to that. And I couldn't agree more that the teams that stepped up, Richmond had been really um, marking time with the very same yep. list that now exploded yep. into into the best team in the competition. Yeah. With them, uh, that's a really good um, uh, example with Richmond. Although I'd say with them, it wasn't so much individual players jumping up to another level as the entire team finding a chemistry that it hadn't had previously. And it probably made us more aware of how important certain players were, a la uh, Shane Edwards, uh, Nick Foston, Basha Hooley, et cetera, et cetera. So you can bet your life, you know, if you look back on this halfway through the year or whatever and there's a team that's sort of come from nowhere, like Brisbane last year, you'll be talking about players we haven't even thought about right now, or, or players who were just dismissed as, oh, yeah, they're always going to be around that mark. So, so so an interesting team from that perspective, and you've done the analysis on them, and I know that you keep a bit of an eye on this club, is North Melbourne, because they would rely, not rely heavily, but with a new coach and uh, an opportunity for some players who maybe had their reputations sort of stamped, their, their limitations under the previous coach were known, but now they've got a bit of a, a blue a, a blue sky, an opportunity to just take that next step, maybe in a different position, different role. Do you think North Melbourne has the cattle to improve internally enough, not just to stumble into the eight, but to be a player? Um, right off the top of my head, uh, I'd say not, actually. Uh, uh, look, I, I think they can, they're certainly a finals contender, I think, because they'd finished ninth the previous season. Yet my doubt remains, is there enough out-and-out class there to take it to another level? I mean, they do, they have some good emerging talent. One thing that did worry me a tad with them when I looked at the top 10 in their best and fairest was how familiar all the names were. Um, By the same token, you know, they've had uh, one of their big sort of bonuses last year was Nick Larkey stepping up up forward. Um, that's the other thing. You've got five clubs who have changed coaches, um, four of whom changed coaches during the season, although in Fremantle's case it was only one game. So in the case of, say, North, who changed after round 10 and Carlton, uh, was that even before or around the same time, you've almost got to look at what happened under those caretaker coaches who became the permanent coaches to... Uh, assess sort of how they're going to be. North, the way they played changed to an extent. They became a lot more contested ball focused. I think quicker ball movement became um, more of a consideration for them. But there were several categories in which they remained fairly similar. Jack Zebel going back to the midfield, I think, played a big role. Um, but this is sort of symptomatic of a coach taking over during the season. So whether it was Teague, Shaw, or indeed Brett Ratton, the first thing that they do is they sort of loosen the belt a little bit and all those teams become more attacking because they know that that's what the fans want. They've been put in that position basically because the side can't make the eight anymore. Mm. So there's no real pressure to win for finals positioning yeah it's more the style of football you play and you're going to be lauded 
if your team scores more, if you're playing that more expansive attacking style of football, and you're going to come under scrutiny if all of a sudden the team goes backwards in their output. Yeah, and I think, you know, in terms of different style, it was probably more obvious with, say, Carlton. Um, you know, they, they began to be a lot more uh, aggressive with the way they moved the ball particularly. Um, like, they were early in the season, and this is no criticism of Brendan Bolton, but they were tended to be fairly defensive. Uh, they were a stoppage-orientated team. They were very defensive from those stoppages, even when they were in an attack. I mean, that was one thing which changed, the way they set up after or post-stoppage. Um, they opened the door a bit to be able to score more, and they did as a result. Um, we saw things there like uh, Mark Murphy and um, Ed Kernow going back to primarily midfield roles, you know, yep. so, but there, I mean, there was, there was uh, rational thinking behind why they weren't playing those roles also, because Brendan Bolton was trying to expedite the development of some of the younger guys, so, you know, was that pushed a bit too far? They're the sort of debates you get into, but yeah, look, it's um, it's an interesting exercise in terms of familiarising yourself with teams for next year, and maybe we'll chat about a few more sort of clubs uh, individually next week. Um, I guess we we should be talking cricket. We're uh, towards the end now of the final test match of the Australian summer. It's been a very low-key test summer, hasn't it? But uh, no flies on the Australian team. They have have performed superbly. It's been a summer where Australia coming out of, and I I simply call it a drawn series in England. I know that we retained the Ashes, but I was particularly disappointed that we sort of uh, meekly surrendered that final test Mm. with poor selection and just a, a really bad test for Australia. So we come out of a drawn test series with improved, our reputation improved, but a lot of it revolved around Steve Smith. Now, this summer has been revelation, Labashane. Fantastic. It's one of the best uh, summers by an Australian test player I can remember. I mean, four test centuries, yeah, I think four test centuries plus eight fifties, I think. He's only failed to reach 50 once in the last seven tests, is that correct? I think that's right. Yeah, no, I, I, had, I had it handy and I lost it. But um, it's been a remarkable coming of age. I mean, it's not, not dissimilar to Steve Smith's sort of rapid emergence, you know? An interesting summer for Steve Smith. He has not been able to partake in the, in the rich pickings that one would have thought might have been available with such a strong number three. But the battle between he and Wagner, now Wagner's been great. I mean... Wagner. <laughs> he's lion-hearted, isn't he? Oh, he's, I love him, yeah. Look, um, yeah, he bangs it in, but he just... Left armour for starters. Which, yeah, no, he's great. He reminds me of... Uh, I've made this comparison before. I mean, I'm not talking about the deliveries or whatever, but the attitude and the stature and whatever reminds me a bit of Andy Bickle. Yep. That yes, workhorse, yep. sort of lion-hearted workhorse type. Great, great analogy. He's more a bowler than Andy Bickle, but it makes you wonder why more bowlers don't bowl like that. <laughs> what do you mean? Well, just a, aggressively. Well, at the ribs constantly. Yeah. I mean, it's because, the closest thing we've seen to body line for a is, while, be, isn't it? Because for 
I mean, when you've got a really good batsman like Steve Smith that runs out of ideas against that sort of bowling, it becomes pretty good bowling. But mm. I guess if you're not quick enough and you're not strong enough to do it for a sustained period, you become absolute fodder for the fodder for the crowd. You'll go for sixes. And I think the key with him is the latter, strong enough. I mean, that his performance in Perth, where the temperature was over 40, I think, every single day, and he was... Well, he ended up bowling a ridiculous number of overs in Perth um, and just bounced back for the Boxing Day test and, and now again in Sydney. Yeah, he's, he's been terrific. I don't know about his batting because he played a pretty irresponsible yeah. shot oh, yesterday. To, to Nathan Lyon. Yeah. It wasn't there for long. Um, but apart from that, yeah, look, uh, disappointing for the Kiwis. Of course, it doesn't help having to make five changes to your test team. How's that? I mean, well, that's right up there in terms of numbers of changes, I reckon. This team is actually probably batted, well, they batted longer than the other, any of the other innings. Mm. The one innings I really did enjoy, now this was, uh, you know that we do some um, work with Kevin Hillier on RSN, many of our listeners know that, and before the World Cup, I was asked to name my, or I named my sort of smokies to look out for in the World Cup. Now, I had watched a World Cup lead-up game between New Zealand and Pakistan, a one-day game, and I saw one of the finest one-day 100s I'd ever seen by this player called Tom Blundell. Mm. So I said, keep an eye out for him. Well, of course, he didn't play a game. He was the reserve wicketkeeper. I was chuffed that he got a game, but thought, oh, opening the batting, that's not where I saw him at his best. That was a very good 100 that he made in the second test. Yeah, and was he the one who shaved the beard off between Perth and Melbourne? I think he had the he had the big bushy beard Mate, and possibly. He, he shaved it off and it was I, I think I was going who who the hell is that but yeah that that was a, a terrific knock in Melbourne to be thrust into the position of keeper uh, opening batsman it's one thing to come in when you're the second keeper sort of to come in and bat at five or six but openings another another step up again and against the Australian fast bowling attack which is clearly the best in the world. He performed well, and well done to Phillips, the surfer, who scored 50 in this test currently being played. Yeah, he's a big hitter, isn't he? Uh, had his, rode his luck, didn't he? I mean, that one where he's caught out in the deep, and the, of course, James Pattinson overstepped. How often does that happen now? Yeah, I'll talk about Big Bash later on, but gee, they are very skillful around the ropes as they when they play those limited over games, they learn how to trip the light fantastic. Yeah, well, there was, uh, I've forgotten who it was now, but at uh, Marvel the other night, there was a, a, I just, I tweeted, what do we call those catches? I'm calling them tag team catches now. Yeah, there was one of the MCG. Someone suggest uh, that might have been what I was thinking of. Someone suggested a double banger. In fact, it wasn't the MCG. It was the um, Stars Renegades game. I was was, at that game and I was sitting right above Yeah, it was Dunk and Dunk. Sort of had the first bite, and then he threw it to. Can't remember. Can't help it. you with any of the players. That's <laughs> part of the problem. Big Bash League. They're yeah. pretty anonymous on the field. Yeah. Well, we'll uh, we'll get into that a bit later. Just on sport, one last thing in sport. Uh, you know, I'd been following the World Championship of Darts. I do. And a great effort by Fallon Sherrick, the girl. She won, or the female player, I should say, or just the very good dart player. She knocked out the number ten seed Mensa Sulovic. She won two games. The game she lost went right down to the wire as well. She's absolutely a valid dart player. Don't worry about any more talking about she, he. Just a very good dart player. But the winner has been maybe in that sport certainly, but one of sports, sorry to say it, snakebite, great chokers. He he has failed to win 
any major event year after year after being in the driver's seat in so many events. In fact, only a few weeks ago, he lost one of the uh, majors in darts, one of the big televised events against Michael Van Gerwen in the final where he had seven darts to win and he kept missing. But he finally got the monkey off his back and beat the world number one Michael Van Gerwen comprehensively in the final. The strange thing about Peter Wright is, which no other player does. So this is, who, who are we talking about? Peter Snakebite Wright. Oh, Snakebite Wright. Okay. Uh, he's a player that just looked like any other dart player. And six or seven years ago, his wife said, let's give yourself an image and shock the dart world by coming out with a mohawk and ah, colour-coordinated okay. skull paint yeah, no, and tops. Yeah. He's lived, he, you, you know what he did? it. The very event that he did that in was the 2014 World Championships and he was about to quit. And his wife said, put your balls on the line. Go out there, get a mohawk, become the centre of attention and start playing properly because you, you're almost embarrassed when you're out there. He made the final that year, got beaten, <laughs> and, and financially he's never looked back, but finally he's won a big one. And the unusual thing about him is, which no other player does ever, when a professional dart player keeps his darts, they've had them from when they were non-professionals. Peter Wright can use four completely different sets of darts in one tournament. He has used, in the last five years, over 100 completely different sets of darts. And he was asked, after winning the World Championship, are you going to use these darts again? Is this going to be your set of darts? He said, are you kidding? My system works. Except it took him 100 sets of combinations to finally get a winner. And he reckons, no, I'm going to keep changing. Do they have like a 12th man run out a new set of darts and they sort of check them? And- they actually bring enough repair stuff with them that they can do running maintenance but it's unthinkable in a tournament to win and win to beat somebody and turn up with a dart that's a completely different weight and design because when i say different darts i'm talking about major different designs okay all right you have to start your own darts world uh, podcast i think um all right there's enough for news feed this week uh let's ruminate on uh, all matters life life hacks Building a better world. All right, as we know, this segment takes us to all sorts of places. Um, I'm going to kick us off this week, Finey. Uh, we talked off the top of the show about these horrible bushfires that just continue and continue. And I have found it a really um, distressing couple of weeks and and. Yeah, I'm not trying to play this up. I mean, obviously, I haven't been affected personally, no family involved, but I reckon most people would know at least someone who has been stuck in one of these areas on holiday or, um, uh, or you know, in some horrible cases had their homes burned down or lost livestock or crops or... Uh, and beyond that, just the environmental impact and we're actually feeling it today as we uh, come in on this Monday morning the smell and uh, the acrid smoke rolling across Melbourne they've, they've had smoke haze in New Zealand I mean it's just it, it's insane um, and and quite distressing some of the images of uh, livestock there was a video shot by an ABC cameraman I saw yesterday driving through I'm not sure what time it was, but driving through a country road with literally the bodies of dead kangaroos 
just scattered at, the, at, at each side of the road. It was uh, a, a horrible, horrible image of a baby joey which had got caught on a fence trying to escape, just burnt to a cinder. It's been, you know, really, really distressing to watch. Um, an elderly woman uh, died at Canberra Airport a few days ago after getting off the plane through just through breathing difficulties. Um, you know, pictures of people with masks over their faces. But I just wanted to single out in, in, in this observation, um, these sorts of situations do bring out great qualities in people. And, uh, you know, without sort of over-sentimentalising it about Aussie spirit and whatever, because in this case it reaches beyond Australia, just people's basic care for other people I think is quite heartening. To wit, um, some of the celebrities who are kicking in, not just by virtue of their own uh, fortunes, but uh, sort of encouraging others to get on board. And the best or the most amazing example of that here is Celeste Barber, the comedian whose um, mother-in-law lost her house in Eden and uh, she got on social media and I think it was Twitter and uh, posted a, a picture of that and launched an appeal which last time I checked uh, just before we recorded this had raised $22 million. That is just a remarkable effort. So incredible work from Celeste Barber but we've had the likes of Nick Kyrgios I think um, perhaps it's fair to say surprising a few people with um, his contribution in terms of uh, money being raised for victims. Um, Peter Siddle and Adam Zampa um, have got a, a thing going in Big Bash Games with the proceeds to help the wildlife that has been lost. I mean, we're talking about, was it half a million animals have, have been lost in, in this carnage um ellen degeneres uh pink pink um you know look i've never been hugely into pink's music but I, you know i've heard her speak and whatever and she's always struck me as a a nice person and uh, she spontaneously donated half a million dollars the other day to i think the uh, various rural fire services around the country so uh, you hear stories like that and you think well all hope for the human race isn't lost. So that that was my first observation. And a good observation. We've been following Celeste Barber. The, my family has because uh, Natalie sort of got onto that very quickly and donated very quickly and get constant updates and very proud of what has been achieved by that Australian. And that's an international effort. It does bring out not only the best in people here, as you say, but also overseas, but shows that when used for good Social media can be a powerful tool that internationalises yet makes immediacy of a tragedy like this felt right around the globe because that's exactly what it is. It's a, it's a global catastrophe. This is a, a, sad to say it, our beautiful Australia, a continent on fire and in previous pre-social media times, I don't think, no, I'm sure that the world wouldn't have been engaged as it is now. That That is a good side of it. I'll talk about the other side of it very shortly. But your first life hack. Okay, my first life hack is uh, we've had guests from New York join us over the Christmas New Year period. And a few of them, of my wife's family, came down to Australia as they have done over the years. And they observed 
they're almost shocked and, and immune to it in a certain sense because the strength of the US dollar against the Australian dollar means that they have a buffer against this, but how expensive Melbourne has become. Oh, really? Mm. Eating out, um, transport, just every aspect of Melbourne life has now eclipsed in terms of dollar for dollar cost New York comfortably. Can, can you say, can you sort of just imitate oh, right. one of them talking about it? I, I just want to hear that yeah. New York accent. Uh, well, they, they've got very strong New York. Mark, <laughs> Mark, whoa, you know, I, I'm, I'm talking, I'm, I'm talking $25 for breakfast here. It's not cheap. It's not cheap. <laughs> I can take you anywhere in New York, a deli, a diner. It's $10, $10. You get eggs, you got bacon, you got toast. Here you're getting half of that for two and a half times the money. That's very good. Okay. Um, but they are, they're right. You know where it's most most acutely felt, and they certainly feel this because they, they're good drinkers, really good drinkers, and they love Aussie pubs. They like going and watching sports at Aussie pubs and having a very something completely alien to them in New York. A bar's a bar, not a restaurant. And they love the idea of going to a pub in summer, having a few beers in the beer garden and having a feed. And they're sort of shocked now that they're all restaurant prices, that yeah. it really has become. Uh, and They're quite happy to pay it, but they're sort of thinking of our dynamic where you used to be able to, we used to go down to the pub, take them down, they get a steak for 15 bucks, 10, 15, and Bob's your, you know, Robert's your father's brother. But now, they're 40, 40 to $50 for a main course of steak is de rigueur in Melbourne. Are they uh, smokers? No. Probably just as well, because that, that, the difference between, that say, was, Europe and Australia and that flabbergasting. is... Flabbergasting. <laughs> flabbergasting. Well, maybe that's a good thing. It's a, yeah, yeah. You, you want to make it harder. All right, no, good uh, good observations. Probably harder to notice that when you actually live in a town. Well, it's, been, it? it's been a creep. It's snuck up on us, I think. Yeah. Yeah, no, good point. Good life hack, that one. All right, uh, second one for me, uh, and I think you want to expand on this a bit later, but... Can't we mentioned cricket before? I can't help wondering um, this BBL season now uh, a qualifier here. Last season I was doing a show on Macquarie Sports Radio prior to the Big Bash, so I ended up and and then covering the Big Bash. Um, so I, wo- I watched literally every game of last season's Big Bash. I haven't been nearly as attentive. This summer, though, having said that, I still have watched, I reckon, yeah, I've watched a bit of just about every game and probably three quarters in full. But I was just kind of wondering whether the whole concept is losing its luster a little bit. Just the buzz, there's certainly not the same buzz around it. I have watched a lot of games which make me think eh, it's looking a bit same-ish. Um, and to be perfectly frank, in terms of the competitiveness rather than individual feats. The only one that sticks in my mind so far from this season is the one that went to a super over between uh, the Sydney Thunder and the Sydney Sixers. Now, that that was entertaining, but I honestly can't remember another game. There haven't been too many who come right down to the wire or have had little twists in the, the tail as such. So... Um, yeah, look, I mean, it's season nine of the BBL, so obviously the novelty was going to wear off at some stage. I haven't even had a look at the TV ratings or the crowd figures, so maybe they're keeping pace, but just starting to wonder whether the, the magic is sort of wearing off the BBL a bit, and I know you want to expand on that later. This will, so be, this will be my rant. I, I can um, 
let the cat out of the bag. I'll say this, that I feel as though the people behind the Big Bash League, which is, is it Cricket Australia that runs it per se, or is, is it uh, run by its own no, administration? No, it's, yeah, it is. They've fallen asleep at the wheel. They, they were blessed with great public acceptance, started in 2011. People really um, embraced it. There were some big names came out here. We had the big-hitting West Indians. When you have a look at it this year, it's only bits and pieces sort of flying in without appointments elsewhere. So the quality of player has plateaued and probably gone backwards. You've got Australia's test team really gaining the respect and sort of being embraced again by the Australian cricket community. So none of them are there. They're the big names in Australian cricket. And very soon, during the competition, the one-day players are leaving anyhow. So you're going to lose a few of the big hitters. There's many other reasons why I think uh, the Big Bash League has, as you rightly point out, lost its luster. And I'll expand on those in rant time. All right. uh, So your second one. Okay. Um, Andrews Hamburgers are our great sponsors because they make the best burger in Australia. But the company that makes the most burgers in Australia should be recognised and praised as well. Not so much for their burgers. Not that I want to poo-poo McDonald's, I've had them, everybody I think accesses their convenience at some point in time. But they are a great employer of young Australians and my son Lucas starts his first job tomorrow at Richmond's McDonald's. Well done Lucas. He's the third fine child to enter the workforce and I think it's rarely spoken about but how many young Australians get their start with all the fast food outlets and supermarkets, there's not many places young people can go to work nowadays. You know, the old paper run doesn't exist anymore. There's no work at the newsagents. The butcher shop doesn't have a job out the back for a kid. Well, hang on. When you say the old paper run doesn't exist anymore, I mean, there are still papers being delivered to people's front doors. Out of cars. Ah, all out of cars. Yeah, the newsagent. A lot fewer. Yeah, the newsagent himself just drives around, I think, and chips them out because there aren't enough to warrant a, a kid on a bike doing the well, run. <laughs> we we finally had our um, home delivered age stopped uh, two years after I'd left. They finally cottoned <laughs> on that we were still getting it. But they do McDonald's at the forefront, but KFC, Hungry Jacks, I'm sure, play a role as well. Taco Bell's now in Australia. I visited them recently. Oh, Taco Bell. Yeah. Oh, God. So now we've got a Taco Bell and a Taco Bill. Well, Taco Bell's a restaurant that's been around for ages. Taco Bell's a fast food chain, and they're huge in America. A bit mm. different, the one in Australia, but not bad. Uh, it's, it's, an, it's important that young Australians get a, a taste of the workforce. It, it expands them. Not only gives them a chance to earn a bit of money, but really expands their horizons. And in the case of my f- two eldest children, they grew up a lot at work. It really was part of their development. So I'm looking forward for Lucas to be similarly afforded that opportunity. Thank you, McDonald's. And he starts today, does he? Tomorrow morning. Oh, tomorrow. Does he know, is he in the sort of coffee section or the burger section or the chips? He's Mm. had a couple of, uh, you've got to do an online course. Yep. That brings him up to speed on mainly safety. Right. And in his first week, all his shifts are mentored. So he'll be tethered to a more experienced employee. Did you say which one he's working at? Yeah. Oh, you did, didn't you? Yeah. Is there a drive-through? Yeah. Okay. Now, he won't you, be at the drive-through. No, no. I was gonna, you probably shouldn't have said which one he's working at, lest he be harassed. Uh, all right. Good luck, Lucas. He's unharassable. Trust me. Oh, okay. No, that's that, that's good. Um, 
All right, third one from me. Now, you mentioned the upside of social media, and, and I agree. I'm, as you know, and as people who listen might be aware, I'm, I'm a big Twitter person or a big twit. And um, it, as a news source, I think Twitter is unparalleled, and uh, that's half the reason I've found it so addictive. On the negative side, there's the abuse and there's the circular arguments that keep going round and round and I have had, um, because I've been basically at home and it's been reasonably quiet, um, I have spent whole days getting sucked into oh, Twitter stouches. Oh, no, well, I'm not going to put my You're hand up. You're famous for this. Well, this is, uh, this is the, the worst one um, on Friday. It just went all day. I've been, and I've said it before recently, I've been getting really wound up about climate change and people's refusal to acknowledge the... I told you, I told you in one of my life hacks, you, can't, you cannot be ambivalent about climate change. Well, well, people still are. And uh, that's sort of fired me up. So I've, I, I've been tweeting far more than usual about politics and about climate change specifically. And um, on Friday... It wasn't just what you're thinking about, though, people just sort of randomly abusing you. It was people... It wasn't really abuse as such. It was just people continuing to propagate misinformation and and stuff that's been disproven and and having... I'm finding myself being asked the same question literally dozens of times. And unlike a lot of people, I, I don't just sort of ignore it. I tend to respond to most tweets I get. And I sat there on Friday night. I was absolutely knackered. And I, I thought, how many tweets have I sent off today? You know what the number was? It was about... Tell me, tell me. It was about 220. That's a lot of work, mate. Uh, it is. And I, I, I thought it, it just absolutely exhausted me. So I haven't been as quiet as prolific since then. But there's been things like... I've, I've been reporting people. I mean... Reporting them? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. No, no. Who too? The, the Twitter police? Yeah. Who and, are the Twitter police? Well, people that run Twitter. Um, but yeah, you can report. Are they, are they above or below protective services at um, <laughs> train stations? I'm pretty sure they don't carry guns. But um, and look, the you know the punishments they meet out to people tend to be pretty unsatisfactory. But oh, look, I've seen disgusting stuff. I've seen what punishments they get. Right, from now on, you've now got two characters less. No, no, people get suspended for periods of time and stuff. I'll just give you an example. I mean, the story about when the PM went to Cabago and got abused by the local residents, and he had that incident with, um, I can't remember her name, Zoe, the the young woman who he walked away from. Yeah, Yeah. Um, And uh, Channel 10 showed a news report of that, which I tweeted, and some person underneath that, Tweeted, you know, um, a pity she survived. You know that this report uh, to police. Report. No, but it's, it's oh, sorry, it's unpalatable. Fine, that uh, is disgusting. Well, I will tell you, did you report that person? Yeah, I did, and so did numerous other people. And report fi- finally. No, don't make light of it. I I find the no, report, no, I find the reporting them odd. Aren't there mediators and pe- people who moderators? Moderators, sorry, who who. No, there's oh, not. Well, it, and it's, it's a huge worldwide forum, so so it is a real issue. And I don't like people dobbing on other people. Yeah, well, I think in this case it's absolutely justified. There was uh, another one. Uh, I'm not even going to dignify this prick with a name, but a so-called cartoonist in this country who uh, 
spread some absolutely revolting stuff about that whole town of Cabago. What um, cartoonist would do that? A uh, cartoonist with no talent who isn't employed by any major media organisations and who's a, a really ordinary human being. Um, and he got reported by a lot of people, and I think he was temporarily suspended or something too. But, yeah, look, that's the the downside. I've also noticed a lot more bots lately. And do you know what a bot is? It's no. basically a computer-generated um, anonymous account. This is we're getting into that Russian Facebook US election territory here. And um, they're... Like ants, you know, and I've noticed a lot more of them on Twitter lately. And it's, I've found using Twitter uh, a more draining, uh, angst-ridden experience lately. And I hope it's uh, lost its luster, has it? What? Yeah, it's it's been it's been tough, and I really don't want to get off it because I think the pros far outweigh the cons. But um, yeah, I think Twitter is a lot more. Uh, Facebook is a lot more feral than Twitter. I, I now don't use Facebook other than to post stuff on my professional page. Twitter, I think, has a better quality of discussion and less ignorance, but it's starting to head down that road. So I hope the people that run it are sort of aware of this and can do something about it. All right. Did, uh, did Donald Trump cross? You know, catch your... Um did you serve it up to him? Did he catch your eye over the Christmas? No, he's been relatively quiet by his standards. Oh, he's, oh, well. he's, done, he's done one pretty much. Yeah, no, thing. sorry, I didn't. I, I meant on a social media context. Yeah, he has. He started World War Three. Yeah, potentially. Yeah. All right, your last one. Okay, I finish off with a movie that Natalie and I saw. It's a documentary, but it, as a movie, and it is un. You must see it. If you have not heard of it, good. Because I like people going to see things. I like seeing things almost as a blank slate. So it's going to be very hard to give you much information other than tell you what's called Tell Me Who I Am. And the broad brush stroke, this only is the, the entry into it, is it is the story of a of two identical twins, one of whom had a motorbike accident at 18 and awoke... And when he awoke, he looked at his twin brother and said, Marcus, he'd been in a coma for quite a while. They were delighted that he seemed to have his faculties. Marcus, his identical twin brother, is the only thing he remembered and recognised in the world. No other person, no other thing. He had to learn how to do his shoelaces again. He didn't know what a toaster was or a table. He only knew Marcus. And his whole life thereafter is helped along and guided by Marcus, who not only teaches him what things are, but also fills him in on his past. And it is unbelievably powerful. And it's a doco. Doco. Where'd you see it? On Netflix. Oh, it's on Netflix, is it? Yeah. Okay, great. I thought you were talking about like cinema sort of thing. No. All right. I just. Uh, I think it was Academy Award nominated. Okay. No, I'll definitely look that up. Just a quick addendum to we talked, uh, we did 1989 in our vinyl and video segment the other week. And um, in fact, last week or our last show. Yes. Um, and that's actually made me start to revisit Seinfeld, which I sort of drifted oh, yeah. in and out of. So I've been uh, IQing all the episodes of Foxtel and I've, I'm running through season five at the moment and uh 
Yeah, no, I'm really, I'm really enjoying it, and I'd, I'd forgotten most of it. So I'm sort of, it's like I'm, you know, sort of watching it all over again. But the one thing that is, I find really difficult to deal with is that live audience. Yeah, they get uh, rid of that after season five. Oh, do they? Yeah, no, good thing because it's really off-putting. And you know what's really weird about it? Maybe you know the answer to this. How come, you know, Jerry and George and Elaine come in and it's just. Uh, as per usual, but Kramer comes in and they're crap. What's that about? Oh, that live audience effect. Oh, you're talking about the ones watching it. Yeah. Oh, so they've already probably season five probably got rid of the bits where he does stand up comedy at the start of the show. No, no, that's in it. That's yeah, in I think season that's a five. I think that's the last year of that. Yeah, because Larry David went out of it and he had so much uh, on his plate, he he didn't do it. I think. But what's the Kramer? Okay, because Kramer was always he's never in the opening scene. Yeah, and his entry. Had become, had gained a bit of cult status amongst the live audience. You know, he would slide in, and, yeah, yeah. And knowing that this thing's all shot as a, basically as a, a, a it, they attempt to shoot, and I think they do shoot it without break. So it's basically a play on stage. Uh, the big risk factor is Kramer's entry, and I think before the program starts, you know, they'll have somebody there to razzle up the crowd. The teaser is. He's sometimes unkindly titled, and I believe because I know people that have gone to see it or had gone to see it that the to get them sort of excited and get that energy up, they talked about Kramer's entry and anything could happen. It could go wrong, so people are, are waiting for it. When he comes in, they've sort of been primed <laughs> to be up and about. Okay, uh, yeah, I just I wondered if he had it written into his contract that he had to get the applause or something. Anyway, it's pretty funny, but. I, I am enjoying it, so uh, uh, thanks for putting me onto it. Was it you that told me again. new season of Curb Your Enthusiasm yep. is coming? Uh, yeah, that's good. I think January 21st, certainly cool. not far away. So, yeah, looking yep. forward to that. All right, there's enough for Life Hacks this week. I think it's time we revisited a significant year, finding a very significant year for music, for movies, and for TV. Vinyl and Video. Pressing rewind on our favourite music, movies and TV. Alright, we're getting some great feedback to this segment, Finey, and it is fun sort of uh, dropping in on the cultural and artistic icons of our youth, um, or relative youth, uh, certainly in this case, because we have gone all the way back to... 1977. And why have we chosen that? I think it's a great year. I think 77 is the height, or almost the, the climax, the peak of 70s fashion, uh, uh, that now fondly remembered, almost innocent era of of explosion of colour and what we now almost look back and laugh at, but there was no restraints in terms of of clothing with, you know, bell-bottom pants and guys wearing, you know, guys wearing uh, those big open neck shirts, Starsky jackets were around. It was anything goes. It was, there was still a bit of the leftover of the summers of love of the late 60s, and we hadn't quite been sort of uh, struck into world 
paralytic fear over Star well Star Wars the movie came out, but over Ronald Reagan-esque fears of attacks by the Russians and I don't know, it was just a really free and easy innocent times. There was kids were still running on the ground, stopping fours at international cricket games. Well I was gonna say you say nineteen seventy seven and the first thing I think of, and it's probably a sad reflection on my life, the first thing I always think of is the Tide Grand Final between yeah, Collingwood yeah. and North Melbourne. Yeah, there was the Tide Grand Final that year. Just the number nineteen number 1977, I see it written in that sort of... It's a of, sexy number, isn't it? It is. 77. And I see it sort of written in, in that that um, 70s style font. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, maybe bubble written or, or like the numbers St Kilda had one year around. Oh, yeah, with the bit, the bit in the middle. Yeah, yeah, the 3D numbers. Yeah, that was a bit weird, wasn't it? <laughs> it certainly was. That was the early 80s, but... Nevertheless, I like 77, and it's also a bit of a standout year, I think. Maybe not in depth, but some very important music and TV and film that year. All right, so let's start with the music, and seeing you chose a year, you can kick us off with this one. What is your musical choice of 1977? It's the first album by a band that was born out of a, a club in New York. So this club, this famous CBGB's, had produced Patti Smith, The Ramones, yeah. a band called Television, which apparently kicked off in a big way. Well, I might as well chip in there. They had I, I wrote down some notable albums from 1977, and they released Marquee Moon, which is a real cult classic. So the fourth band that was a live performing band at CBGB's to produce an album came later in 1977 it was talking heads now, ah. the name of the album is talking heads 77 okay and most of the songs don't really will, will not be remembered because they weren't released as singles as i got uh first talking heads song i ever heard was um the, and i'm pretty sure the one they played first on radio here was um take me to the river was it is that on it no it's not on ah. this album really resonated of their live performances which were high energy powerful performances you can imagine if you're performing nightly alongside the Ramones you know it would be CBGB's it would be nothing for the Ramones Talking Heads and Patti Smith to appear on the same evening yeah. sharing the bill Patti Smith two songs passing out or or getting you know getting stoned or drunk and uh, the Ramones taking over and then Talking Heads jumping on stage with Dave Byrne in a big 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 suit but the one song from this album that I think everybody knows that just it took the music world by storm because it is a it's a fun song it's powerful it's got great riffs and it's memorable is Psycho Killer. Ah yeah. yes, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, this just occurred to me now. Was that written about the son of um, son of Sam murders, which were the year before in nineteen seventy six? I don't think so. Okay. Uh, you know, there's a lot of French in the song, but Psycho Killer, Kescasse, yeah, no, 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 Talking Heads had arrived, yeah, and they would hang around for quite a while and give us a lot of memorable music. But it started with Talking Heads '77. Okay, no, it's uh, I, I do like that track, um, and again, I, it's one of those visual images. You say Talking Heads, the first thing I see is. David Byrne sort of moving around erratically in um, in a big suit. Uh, yeah, uh, uh, I've just forgotten the name of the song. Um, Take me to the room. Once in a lifetime, yep. which was uh, a fair bit later, actually. I think it was about nineteen eighty or so. Mm-hmm. Anyway, all right, good choice. Uh, I'm going with a far more obvious one, and I'm going with an album, of course, because I'm a 
bit of a Nazi about stuff like this, but um, big year for music, big year for albums. I mentioned Marquee Moon by Television. Uh, My Aim is True, Elvis Costello was released that year. Uh, far more commercially successful ELOs, Out of the Blue, uh, Let There Be Rock, ACDC, another killer album by Akadaka. Rumour by Fleetwood Mac. Rumours by Rumors, Fleetwood yeah. Mac, and that was probably... Your favourite album. No. Oh, I didn't... <laughs> Look, I, to be honest, no, I never hated Fleetwood Mac, but boy, did that get flogged on the radio, Rhiannon. Um, uh, And there was a whole lot of singles off that too And one of those instantly recognisable album covers too, Rumours It's funny because the album you're about to present I think has in the top three recognisable iconic album covers of all time Yes, definitely does And it's eye-catching Whereas Rumours is also memorable for, for I think all the wrong reasons It's almost nauseating It's that, what's it supposed to be? That that 1980 90s look. Yeah. So, so, well, she's of, on a chair and yeah, he's got his, you know, standing and his foot yeah, raised yeah, on I'm the chair. It's penny-farthing fashion. Yeah. I mean, it really makes me ill. All right. No, this is a great album cover uh, and a great album. And um, if you haven't cottoned on yet, I'm talking Sex Pistols, Never Mind the Bollocks. And um, my initiation of Sex Pistols came about my brother, Steve, who, incidentally, I uh, should mention this, it was um, Steve, of course, sadly, no longer with us, but his birthday would have been on January the 3rd, and he would have turned 61, so that gave me the opportunity to tweet out a clip of Paul Kelly and the Colour Girls' Leaps and Bounds, of course, a iconic song in uh, Melbourne culture and an iconic... On the Nilex silos. Yes, an iconic film clip. Which a few people subsequently asked me about because the line is uh, the clock on the silo says 11 degrees. Well, the clock in the clip says 27 degrees because it was filmed on a hot February day with a hot northerly blowing and they all thought they were going to get swept by the helicopter off the top of the <laughs> silo. So anyway, I digress. Um, yeah, Steve introduced me to Sex Pistols, brought home a couple of singles um, which were released first. One was God Save the Queen. One was Anarchy in the UK, and uh, the album was released uh, shortly after that, and it is a great album, and I know a lot of people that sort of might not have listened to it sort of think, oh yeah, you know, pretty ordinary band musically, and you know, uh, couldn't really play and whatever, well, rubbish, um, the... the um, was it Steve Jones, the guitarist? Uh, I mean, musically, this album holds up, and they're just they're killer, catchy songs. So, uh, and most of them you would have heard over the years. I think we've been acquainted with all of them. But the standouts, obviously, "God Save the Queen," which you can't underestimate the impact that had on British society when it came out. Um, "Anarchy in the UK" and "Pretty Vacant" um, are the three most obvious tracks. But "Holidays in the Sun." Uh, bodies, uh, what else? Problems, submission, New York, uh, EMI. You know, most people have heard these songs at some stage. It, it, uh, I guess, sort of introduced that whole punk genre to world music, and it took off. And it was a short-lived thing, but um, it probably continued to influence uh, the sounds of many, many, many rock bands in subsequent years, and and still does. So um, John Lydon, of course, a.k.a. Johnny Rotten, still performing around the traps. He went on and put together Public Image Limited, who had their own very successful 
career, but um, just uh, as a musical statement and just for damn good rocking. Uh, and, you know, to be honest, I listen to it now and it sounds, I, I would not classify it as more rock than punk. You know, it doesn't have the sort of double uh, double time sort of thrashy punk sound that a lot of people equate with punk. It's just good, honest, raw, gritty guitar, bass and drums. So never mind the bollocks, uh, a, a seminal album in music history and that is my pick of 1977. All right, let's talk movies. So plenty of grist for the mill here and I'm delving into a world not seen by many but exposed by a very famous movie called Pumping Iron. In 1977, the world of the Mr. Olympiad, that is bodybuilding, ultra bodybuilding, the biggest bodies on the planet, and it gives you an insight into the competitive nature of and the win, the winning mindset of Arnie, Arnold Schwarzenegger. I've literally never heard of this movie. Oh, it's a fantastic movie. It, it's a real insight into this world, but beautifully filmed documentary. Lou Ferrigno's in it and a couple of other uh, high-profile Big, big bodybuilders, and it is, you don't need to have any interest, respect, or fondness for bodybuilding, but it is a freak show. I mean, these are these are guys. So it's a doco. Yes, is it? okay. yeah, it's a doco, but you know, it's it's not done with any voiceover work. It's these guys talking through, um, you know, their preparation for this huge competition, which is really the biggest beasts on the planet. And it was at a time when steroids were just coming into the sport. So these guys had exploded in size. And whilst that isn't a feature of the program, certainly their psychology, their mental state, and this young Arnold Schwarzenegger who is just, he's come from Europe, he's appeared in these D-grade sort of Conan Barbarian, you know, Bar- Oh, so it wasn't his first movie. <laughs> um, he's come to appear in these movies but he's trying Murphy. to take on, take on the world champions in bodybuilding, which is very hard to come from nowhere to do this. And it, it's just, you know, if you love his accent and you like his little throwaway lines, there's so many great quotes. You know, he, he just, at one point he's like eating bananas and drinking power shakes, an enormous amount of them, and he just looks to the camera and he goes, I need potassium. <laughs> <laughs> My life in movies. Potassium. And, and, yeah, it's it's a really interesting movie. All right. No, interesting choice because I didn't know you were going to uh, talk about that because you did say it was a big year for movies. Well, um, some huge movies. Uh, a lot of movies that people would be familiar with. I just scribbled down uh, some I guess, most obvious ones. Um, Saturday Night Fever, which I think is a really good movie, Saturday Night Fever. It's a great movie. Yeah, well, for a long time I sort of refused to watch it because all I knew of it was the disco soundtrack and I sort of wasn't into disco. But um, it's funny, as you get older, I mean, some of the hit songs out of that now I can actually listen to and and don't mind. And I think... um, they they hold up pretty well musically, but the story and and the acting is is all um, it's a it's a quality movie, and it teaches a key life lesson, which is don't eat spaghetti before you go out on a Saturday night. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that re- was released in seventy seven. Uh, Close Encounters of a Third Kind with boop, boop, boop. 
Richard Dreyfus, which I liked a lot. Big Spielberg breakout, wasn't it? Yep, and uh, another big one, and won the Oscar for Best Picture, actually, Annie Hall. Uh, now, I love yes. um, early Woody Allen stuff. Yep. Uh, I'm sort of taking a little bit about a lot of the later stuff. This was sort of a, a big um, fork in the road for, for Woody. and This was like the first movie he did that had a sort of... Uh, it, it's a comedy, but yeah. it, it was a more sort of... Cerebral. Because the previous ones, there was a lot of silly, fun humour in yeah, them, yeah. And they were great. Yeah, no, they're, they're definitely my favourites. Bananas, Take the Money and Run, uh, Sleeper, etc., etc. Annie Hall. In fact, I, and I can remember going to see it as a kid with my family and being coming out really pissed off because it wasn't traditional Woody Allen and I didn't get a lot of it. I remember actually, it just flashed through my head now, I remember we came out and they all loved it and I was really pissed off. But (laughs) as you get older and you understand uh, some of the more cerebral moments a bit better, it is a really good movie. But I've gone with the blatantly, blindingly obvious here finding and I had to, uh, Star Wars. And um, the start of uh, what for some people is almost a life cult the cult of Star Wars, which continues to this day, obviously the latest uh, instalment in the ongoing adventures of uh, Luke Skywalker, etc., etc., still going in 2020. But this was the start of it. I remember I was fortunate enough to go to the Melbourne premiere of it. Um, my father was a, a film critic with the Melbourne Herald, and, and thus we went along. And uh, always remembered this too. Ivan Hutchison's Midday Movie Show. They used to do um, sort of pre- and post-movie interviews and whatever. They had a crew along at the um, launch of Star Wars and they grabbed me and my sister for a Vox Pop. And uh, I can't remember exactly what I said, but I think they asked me what I liked most about it and I said, oh, the special effects or something. But that was, as a kid, that was sort of one of the most eye-catching things in terms of special effects. It sort of went places we hadn't been before. Um, you know, if you're one of two people on the planet that isn't familiar with it, uh, directed by George Lucas, uh, starring Mark Hamill, Harrison Ford, Carrie Fisher, um, famous musical score by John Williams, uh, instantly recognisable continues to resonate today uh, Alec Guinness also of course uh, in the film as Obi-Wan Kenobi uh, introduced us to the um, not animation the uh, the figures of R2-D2 C-3PO and the famous Chewbacca and the story is very simple um, Luke and, uh, and co attempting to free Princess Leia from the clutches of the Galactic Empire and attempting to destroy the infamous Death's star and uh, the start in uh, what has become a franchise of course uh, Return of a Jedi came out in 1980 subsequently sorry uh, Empire Strikes Back 1980 Return of a Jedi 1983 the original Star Wars was nominated for 10 Oscars it won seven Oscars uh, highest grossing ever film until E.T. which was 1982 and I looked this up last night, adjusted for inflation, it is still the fourth highest grossing movie in the history of the world. Off the top of the head, can you think what the top three would be? Titanic? Uh, yes, number three. Good call. Avatar? Number two. 
Did you see my notes? No. This is amazing. I wouldn't have got that. And number one. One of the Batmans? No. Uh, Much older. Oh, uh, older than Gone with the Wind? Yep. I've got to say, I am right now in awe that (laughs) this bloke, not a word of a lie here, this guy has just nominated the highest three grossing films of all time. Off the top of his head. That is amazing. They're not Avatar I wouldn't have picked. Yeah, I knew Avatar was a big box office. I still haven't seen it. Here's here's an even bigger confession. I still haven't seen Titanic. Well. I know what happens. (laughs) (laughs) Can I... When Star Wars came out, I saw it. I thought it was a great movie. You got C three PO, R two D two. You know the two back here, iconic characters, really mm. good. And I enjoyed it. I got to admit, I enjoyed it. And with each subsequent uh, sequel and prequel, I liked the franchise less. I know. I know. I now find it a meaningless, blithering, stumbling, storyless. Endless pursuit of money by Lucasfilm with a story that just cannot be told because it goes back and forwards and it has no real point or interest. And it's actually lost its its gleam, not because it's been superseded by better science fiction effects or whatever. I think it really did a brilliant job at creating a world, but the world has been lost in a story that... No one cares about. Yeah, no. I'm, I must say, look, I'm like this with all science fiction now. They just all, like I've seen them all except the new one, and I think I thought they were okay, but I can't remember anything about it. And I get totally confused by the fact that after the first three, the next three were prequels. Yeah, of course, the timeline. And so you talk to your kids. So when I say, oh, the first Star Wars, and he's talking about a different movie to what I am because this became. A New Hope, which was the fourth in in the chronological line of stories. Um, the only bit I remember of the last film, which I hear now was sort of fans hated it, was, um, in fact, what was it? The Last Jedi. But the only scene I remember from that is where a disillusioned Mark Hamill walks along the beach and pours himself a glass of green milk from a reclining monster. Hmm. Um, and... and um, what is the one, uh, is it a, uh, the clones one, um, with Jar Jar Binks, which uh, one of the most universally hated movie characters, characters in history? Yeah, I, I stopped watching them, and I'm not that interested in the story. That's why I no longer will watch them. And it reminds me of, you know, Jumping the Shark and yep. Happy Days. The cartoon equivalent to Jumping the Shark, I believe, is when a popular cartoon series brings out a series where they're all like five, eight-year-old toddlers. So they're the same characters, but they've been sort of drawn down to <laughs> little kids. Yeah. Has Star Wars done that yet? <laughs> Have we got... Little Star Wars, yeah. yeah. you know, with Mark... Oh, that's right. They did that with the Flintstones, didn't you they? You know, babe, they've, I've seen little Sylvester cats and little... <laughs> <laughs> and, and baby foghorn leghorns. How, how is South Park going to do it? Because they're, they're all in grade four anyway. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> you imagine, best thing a baby, so, imagine baby Cartman. You know the zip lining episode yeah. where you see them as real well, humans? Yes. <laughs> That's pretty funny. That's a worry. <laughs> that is very funny the way they did that. Yeah. Uh, and they've all got cold sores, haven't yeah. they? <laughs> it's a funny episode. All right. Um, all uh, TV. Okay, my TV... Even if it didn't 
star, I think Australia's greatest TV talent, even if it didn't have a regular cast of hilariously sort of um, B-grade entertainers that had their own particular seat, which made it humorous. Just the set alone, which is so 1970s, very similar to the Seinfeld episode where he, he gets the Merv Griffin show set out of a dumpster and starts hosting <laughs> talk shows in his apartment. All right, well, what are we Blankety Blanks. Ah, oh, Blankety Blanks. Now, Blankety Blanks set is so beautifully 70s, isn't it? Yeah. You know, that, that sort of, um, what is that style? That, that plastic, fantastic, round-edged oranges and... I love the and then there's and the fashion, the wide lapels, great fashion. The seating, <laughs> seating it, people it, love quoting seat placings. Speaking about fashion, by the way, in '77, I always remember the could have been champions coined this. They talked about Ron Barassi in the coach's box that day and his wing keeled collar. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> was that Sorry. the? Was that when he wore the the? Was it white jacket, blue? Shirt or he had that uh, in the drawer. I think. I think I in the replay. Sh- in the replay, he had a blue suit with a, a shirt which was green and I love it. And the big chest and some. Yeah. Go- it was. Gr- he looked great. Yeah, he looked fantastic. Yeah, he was pretty sexy back then. The he, old he Ronald fan- Dale. He looked fantastic in those grand finals in the seventies. Yeah. Back to blankety blanks. Everybody loves sort of bit of um dinner. You know. Dinner party or out to a restaurant chat after you've had a few few sherbets or something to loosen the loosen the conversation. People lo- love to start remembering where everybody sat. <laughs> you know, it was top always top right was Ugly Dave Gray, <laughs> held yeah. up by a s- cigar. Yeah, of course. Underneath him, Stuart Wagstaff, <laughs> Peter Debonair, T- Stuart Wagstaff, yeah. Yeah. Peter Tapano next oh, yeah. to Stuart Wagstaff. <laughs> uh, Carol, Carol Ray. Can't even remember she was the blonde, Ray. blonde, sort of um, middle-aged performer. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, centered next to Dave Gray, um, who kicked us off. Who was the first dancer? And then there were great guests like Ray. You know, what's his name? Was Burgess? He oh, had, baby John Burgess. No, no, not John oh. Burgess. The singer. Oh, Ray Burgess. Burgess Love the, Fever. Yeah, he had the big wide open. You know, he had chest. Oh, did they have a song to kick it off, did they? No, 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 no. Oh, they so just, he, he was on he the He appeared panel. on it sometimes. Yeah, right. Um, they had some very sexy sort of... A- Abigail, or yeah, they have people um, like that? Yeah, Delvine Delaney might yeah, have yeah. appeared on it. Um, Chantel Contouri. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> there were some absolute rippers. Um, and, of course, there was Graham Kennedy, who was very funny. The questions were... Today, politically incorrect. Well, wasn't the whole thing sort of double entendres? There was, but, you know, it was Peter the Phantom Puller when you had to uh, match up at the end to get some money to multiply, you know, to make your money multiply by various amounts. But I think Kennedy made it with his pauses and his looks, and he's very funny. I I think he's Australia's greatest TV talent. There was that little period where... This would have been quite awkward normally where the contestants thought about their answers and they were given 10, 15 seconds to think. And that's that can be a long time in TV <laughs> with nobody talking. Do you remember what Graham used to do? No. He just made up this song. Blankety oh, blanks. Oh, that's right, yeah. What a good show. <laughs> yeah. We must give our thanks to Grundy and co. <laughs> yeah, I do remember and that. And things wouldn't work like the, the, you know, the big prize 
thing electronically controlled sometimes didn't come down. He could make great humour out of any any moment in that show. All right, good call. Uh, I've gone for another um, Australian iconic TV show. Um, not not a comedy, although perhaps at I times. hope it's Cop Shop. It is Cop Shop. Oh, you beauty! <laughs> Um, now, there was a period there in the uh, late 70s where um, Australian drama, uh, thanks to Crawford Productions, uh, was just all over TV. And uh, as a kid, I couldn't help but get sucked into it. And I, I fell heavily for Cop Shop and then Skyways, which inevitably came after it. I'd actually forgotten that Cop Shop was on twice a week, I think Monday and Thursday nights. And... Long running, in terms of TV, this is a show that ran from 1977 to 1984. So nine, is it nine seasons? Eight seasons, sorry. 582 episodes. One hour show. Uh, obviously, take out the ads. But that is a lot of drama to be filming. Uh, if you're younger than us, um, we're, we're talking... Uh, you. And in fact, it was different from cop show, usual cop shows in the fact that it had the detectives up on the top floor and the uniformed coppers down below. So you've got to look at different levels of policing. Uh, it featured such famous Australian actors as um, Peter Adams, Terry Donovan, Terry Norris. Uh, now, Peter Adams playing the famous detective J.J. Johnson. <laughs> Terry Donovan, uh, Detective Sergeant Vic Cameron, the boss. Uh, Terry Norris, of course, the crusty old uniform Sarge, Eric O'Reilly, whose whipping boy was the uh, gormless red-headed Gil Tucker as Roy Baker. We had Paula Duncan as Detective Constable Denny Francis, who later became a um, a uh, ununiformed detective. Linda Stoner, bobbing up in everything those days. Uh, she was Constable Amanda King. John Orksick as uh, Danny Francis's love interest, Detective Mike Giorgio. Uh, and, of course, who could forget Joanna Lockwood, who played a former stripper, Valerie Johnson, uh, JJ's love interest, and uh, Valerie's nickname, what, uh, being a former stripper, was, of course, The Big V. Um <laughs> <laughs> it was. That's right. It was. Um, and anyway, a lot of people uh, fell into Cop Shop. Uh, it, it was pretty good. You know, my favourite line from it, and I still, I was thinking of it last night, I still remember it, is when Detective Mike Giorgio turned up for his first day on the job and Terry Donovan, um, who was Vic Cameron, was the rather terse sort of boss of the joint. Mike Giorgio walks up and introduces himself. And, you know, the first thing Terry Donovan says to him is, because uh, Mike Giorgio, of course, is the suave-looking great guy with the unbuttoned shirt and the chunky gold jewellery. And uh, he puts out his hand, shakes Terry Donovan's hand, and uh, old Vic Cameron says to him, congratulations on your navel. <laughs> it always stuck in my head. I love that line. Do you remember there's a fantastic line? I think it's a great line in Chopper. Uh, I haven't seen Chopper. It's one of the five best movies I've ever seen. Okay. You know, it's a highly regarded overseas. Yeah, I do. Damon I loves do. it. Yeah. He's boasting Chopper about to his one of his underworld mates. He he reckons, you know, Chopper's deluded a lot of the time, which is why the actual Mark Reed didn't like this movie, but I think it was a very good portrayal. And he, he claims that he was working, he, he'd started working for the police, 
not as an informant. You know, he didn't say all he was was a creep informant, really. But he was, um, you know, I'm working. So he goes to have a guess who I'm working for. He goes, I don't know. He goes, guess. And he goes, I'll give you a clue. Amanda Duncan. Now, that was written because, you know, he's confused. You know, with coppers all over the shop. It was his reference to Cop Shop. It's a combination of Amanda King, the character played by Linda Stoner, <laughs> and, and Paula, Paula Duncan. Duncan. <laughs> <laughs> Only Amanda Duncan. <laughs> and it was intentionally written to be his confused take on one of the main characters in Cop Shop. Very good. Okay, let's wrap it up there. That is vinyl and video for this week, going all the way back to 1977. There's only one thing left to do, Finey, and that is... Rant your pants off! On Footyology, the Rant Off. All right, Finey, uh... Now, I've got a, a bit of a qualifier here. Normally, in this segment, uh, we have a bit of fun, and it's all a bit um, sarcastic and, and whatever, but uh, I'm not doing that today because, as we said at the top of the show, these are uh, disturbing times, and um, I found them quite confronting, and as we just took a, a very short break, uh, just smelling the permeation of smoke everywhere, even inside. You know, you, you can smell it even indoors. Uh, and we're in Melbourne. It's just, it's amazing. And um, to that end, uh, well, it was sort of to that end. This, I guess, well, no, let's, why don't I just do it and you can make of it what you will. But uh, uh, apologies in advance. Uh, this is quite serious. I'll count you in, but I can. Back rowing up on this, this will be worth listening to because he has been uh, not not um, concerned about it, but he has been very deliberate in making this a serious rant stroke comment on where we are at the moment in Australia. Three, two, one. I'm pissed off with the word politics, Finey, because in this country, the mere mention of that word seems to make too many people's eyes glaze over. And if you ask me, we're paying a big price for that right now. I've spent too much time the past fortnight on Twitter dealing with climate change denialists, people who refuse to believe the consensus of 97-odd percent of the scientific world that man is contributing significantly to our increasing temperatures, rising sea levels, and the horrific consequences of all that. It's draining, and it's costing all of us time we don't have to spare to be actually doing something meaningful to combat it. Climate change shouldn't even be a political discussion, but it's become one. Yet another issue which has mutated into a left v right catfight through opportunism of vested interests, of politicians, of corporations and of those simply resistant to change. I understand why that turns off people who don't want to get sucked into the vortex of shouting, adversarial argument and who don't give a toss about what goes on in Canberra or Spring Street. Unfortunately, now while you can close your eyes and cover your ears to the political process itself, the practical impacts of it are all around us. And yes, they affect every one of us. For example, when one very powerful media organisation owned by Rupert Murdoch owns close to 60% of this country's newspapers, the only pay TV network, the only one which broadcasts the Murdoch-owned Sky News and the most viewed news website, its worldview and its agendas will be how the bulk of the public digests what is happening in the world. Murdoch insisted only recently that there was no climate change denialism within his organisation. 
is probably the most blatant lie about the media ever uttered, as anyone who has ever even heard the name Andrew Bolt, read Miranda Devine or laughed at Chris Kenny can testify. News Corp is an intensely political organisation which doesn't just report news but actively campaigns to the political right, not just in its commentary but even in its reporting and in its editorial decisions on which stories to push and which to ignore. People switched on politically are aware of this and can tailor their opinions accordingly. But what about those that aren't? What about those who believe in good faith that what they read is accurate and balanced? We'll take a look at most of the reader comments under any contentious article in the Herald Sun or Daily Telegraph in Sydney. Hell, even take a look at my Twitter feed and you'll get your answer. It's a sea of misinformation, exaggeration and sometimes just utter lies. That complicates the public response even to tragedies on the scale of that unfolding along the southeast coast of Australia right now. Were we united on what has become blindingly obvious, perhaps the overwhelming pressure would force even the most compromised of governments, hogtied to the vested interests of fossil fuel industries, rich corporations and lobbyists, to do at least something to help turn back the overheating of this planet. Not even for us, but for our kids and for their kids. But we're not united, largely through ignorance. It allows those vested interests and soulless, selfish media moguls who don't give a rat's ass about anything other than their profit margins and political power to obfuscate, to muddy the waters and to keep us doing nothing. The media, like Parliament, is now about politics. Our lives, in one way or another, are directly impacted by politics. And that'll be more the case, even more so, in the future. So it's up to all of us to know the facts, know the science, know the propaganda, so we can't be so easily manipulated and exploited. In short, the enemy here isn't so much right or left as ignorance, and making the decision to learn more, to be informed, is thus also a political decision. I know that word politics bores people, so don't even call it that. Call it giving a shit. Call it caring about what happens to our kids, because we should all at least be interested enough in that. That's beautifully beautifully written and spoken. Not overly uh, passionate is uh, excitable, as you sometimes do get in the fun ones. But it's, uh, it's true. And the politicising of something like climate change means that there are individuals out there on both sides of politics, but who are willing to ride a public opinion all the way to Canberra and to the number one seat in this country, not on the back of what they think is right or necessarily what they believe, but on what they think wins most votes in in, in sensitive seats. Or in a media sense gets the most clicks, well, which I find even more reprehensible. I mean, the, med- the media, unfortunately... Sadly, and I've got another example of this, has lost its way so utterly in the uh, with the rationale of the media world has been taken over by social media and by the internet, and because it's hard to get revenue out of that, we need, as traditional media forms, such as newspapers, television, programming and radio, we need to get the attention of the listener, the viewer, etc., the reader. And to do that, they have stepped over a line of quality and of their own self-checking and balances. Do you know what happens in the news now? I find this really interesting. Sensational stories that provide extraordinary extraordinary headlines are presented in in an ambiguous manner. And I'll explain what I mean by that. Uh, After the break, 
the tragic story of the grandfather. This is a true story. True, this happened and how it was presented. Tragedy at sea after the break. The grandfather who's lost grip of a grandchild on an ocean liner and saw, and saw his own grandchild plummet to their death. These sensational stories are intentionally now not given a geographical location because for Australians, that story is less... Um, impactful when it happens overseas and this occurred in the United States actually quite a while ago there's now a, a court case surrounding it so this was a story from a, from half a year ago or a few months ago in America but now these sensational headlines like clickbait are not given a geographical location because people if they think it's close to home that's a sensational story uh, that's not how news used to be presented. It was well, formatted in a far more responsible manner of, of local, Australian, international, with the order decided on how big an impact it had on us. So, you know, if there was a big war story overseas, that could lead the news. Mm. But not, a, not a, a tragedy as it was like that, but a single death in the US some months ago. Well, I mean, there are, you know, on social media now, people, a lot of people don't even read the story. They just read the headline. All right, uh, we need to get on to your rant now. I'll just count you in. Three, two, one, rant. BBL. Bit boring, lads. And that's unfortunately what our domestic T20 competition has become, uh, quite rightly described earlier by Rowan Connolly as the luster going off what was once a shining new toy. On Saturday night, my now proximity to the MCG allowed my daughter, Harper, and myself to make the impromptu decision to go and watch a big bash game between the Stars and the Renegades. We didn't know who we barracked for. I said, let's go and enjoy a fest of big hitting and entertainment. What we saw was some big hitting, a lot of players who I couldn't really tell my daughter who they were or where they had come from. Maybe I've lost a handle on the local one first class scene, but a lot of them were pretty anonymous cricketers. Glenn Maxwell featured Aaron Finch for the other side, for the stars. Uh, Dale Stain, yes, knew him. Colton Isle, knew him. A couple of older bowlers knew them. Uh, Various players sort of heard of them. The game itself was particularly boring, as many T20 games are. 140 scored, 140 easily reached. But the big problem was that this competition has fallen asleep at the wheel. There's no razzle-dazzle. There's no... The music that was played was played too softly. The in-between... They play music in-between balls, but they don't seem to pick out good parts of the songs. They should be cropped down to be interesting and relevant and a good DJ actually would play something that suited the moment, suited the player batting, suited the bowler. Absolutely not. This was a playlist preordained and apart from a little burst of when Glenn Maxwell came in, nothing matched what was happening on the field. The scoreboard is an atrocity. The old MCG scoreboard might have worked on rollers and plates but it gave heaps of information. This scoreboard is 83% big screen TV, big effing deal. It's about 7% clock and 9% scoreboard. In fact, so tiny is the band given to scoring that the stars, remember there's only five letters in stars, couldn't fit their whole name when they were betting. STA. 
tiny writing for bowlers, no idea about strike rates, all different colours and globes. I know my eyesight isn't great, but this was a complete waste of time. The only other scoreboard on the ground is, is located directly underneath the big scoreboard. It's just stupid. At least uh, they, that was the only one I could see from my seats. The MCG itself, I don't know what happened after the football season. Have they not paid the rent? Are they behind on some fees? Is there some money issues there? It looks like a rent house where the tenants need to be kicked out. One complete bank of lights simply didn't turn on. That's unusual, isn't it? It's bloody unusual. It's almost unsafe. But Light Tower 5, non-operational. And many other lights non-operational in the grandstand made you feel the random nature of the lack of light bulbs that the fuse box had blown. There must be some giant sort of Volkswagen-sized fuse that needed to be replaced to get this place going up on full illumination. All in all, tepid, pretty uninteresting, crowd not that taken with it. The highlight was clearly the MCG attendant standing directly behind myself in Harper. 65 years old, unshaved, but certainly keen on the game because every time the ball was hit into the outfield, he would yell at the top of his voice, there's two in that one! At least he was into it. Wow, that was very animated. What what was the crowd, by the way? 54,000. Okay, that's... Mm. No passion. You know, people yeah. go there in their greens and reds, but there's no passion. We really, we really should cherish football and try and maintain our tribal, our tribal fierce, fierce loyalty to our clubs. Because I'm telling you, between Big Bash and soccer and basketball, people go to these games, but you know what? It, it, they don't, they don't, their week doesn't rise and fall on the results, let me tell you. The night doesn't rise. There's no, they don't care. They just don't care. Yeah, well, a crowd of if you've got a crowd of over 50,000 and it's quiet, that's sort of telling you something about what's on offer, isn't it? Yeah, look, uh, I understand the competition itself is lame because of when it, it, it doesn't attract enough good players from overseas because everybody's playing tests. And then it does itself no, it does itself a disservice when the finals come around and the teams are completely different to the ones that made the finals because players are going off to represent Australia in one day in T20s and going back to England to start other contracts, that's no good. Mm. You, you need a competition where if you barrack for a team, the same team plays right through to the grand final. Yeah, no, uh, hard to disagree with anything you've said there. And, and like I said in Lifehacks, I've had the same sort of thoughts myself. Biggest problem? Don't you find when you watch footy on TV, it's good, but when you go, it's better? Oh, yeah. This is the honestly exact opposite. Yeah. This presents much better on TV. When you go, you sort of think, hang on, they don't show this. It it really is presented better on TV. That's a that's a black mark for the game. Yeah. And interesting, given that the BBL uh, initially, um, a big deal was made about the sorts of entertainment for people there, like the... Dirt bikes at Marvel. There was just nothing. There, there, there was a, you know, there was a band that played a live band played some half songs in between overs. It was a school band. It was really school band standard. It, I, I was sort of embarrassed. <laughs> okay. Um, all right. No, you've you've put that very well. Food for thought. If uh, people connected with the BBL are having a listen. The MCG, you know those lights, the hoardings that light up around the ground in footy that almost, 
the, the LED yeah. stuff, yeah. They're full on in footy. Yeah. Now that could be used when there's a four or a six. Yeah. They were barely. They, they didn't catch the eye. I went to that same ground with my daughter for WWF. Mm. Now people might think it's rubbish, but boy, do they know how to keep young people entertained. All right. Well, uh, maybe they should uh, get you working for them in the promotional department. All right. Uh, we've got to wrap it up there. Thanks for listening and um, just getting back to where we left off. Um, Thoughts are with you if you have been affected personally by these horrible and tragic bushfires which uh, unfortunately still persist and may for some time yet. So stay safe, everyone. And a special mention to all of our emergency service people out there who... Been phenomenal. I know that that has become politicised with wages, etc. But there's you could barely put a dollar amount on bravery and... A call, a call to a call to the what is now our war. We are at war with nature, and they are our front line. Uh, quick um, word to our our sponsors, uh, very yeah. generous sponsors, Nick Bartell and Hardwick Bilco. It's just a, a, a lay down Mazare. If you want top quality work done on inner city building projects, contact them. And why not? Holidays, hamburgers, yes, yes. 144 Bridport Street, Albert Park. Andrews, yes. Get a bite of the best. All right, that's it for this week. To take us out, of course, we revisited 1977 in vinyl and video. Finally gave this song a very big pump up. It is Psycho Killer from Talking Heads. We'll see you next week.